the way I feel after I've done that activity is I feel like a new person, like I feel exhilarated and I'm really smiling and I'm psyched and I just feel great. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today I have professional climber Tim Emmett with us. Tim grew up in the United Kingdom, but he has more recently moved to Squamish, British Columbia, and loving life up in Canada. Tim has been a professional climber for 16 years. He pioneered some new things like para-alpinism years ago. He used to do quite a bit of wingsuiting and base jumping. Um, He's really well known for rock climbing and ice climbing, and he is now pioneering what he calls deep water soloing. So, Tim, welcome to the program. Hi, Kurt. How's it going? It's going really well. Tim, I I just gave a few bullet points, but will you tell us about how you got into these sports and a little bit more information about you and how you became a professional climber? Yeah, sure. Um, it all started for me when I was at school. I was 15 years old, and I had the opportunity to go climbing. And I loved, the, I loved getting out of school and going into the countryside and going to this place that was, you know, surrounded by fields and cows and sheep and stuff like that. And these cliffs were sticking out of the ground and I went there with some friends one day and 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 I really enjoyed the experience of trying to climb to the top of these things never really knowing if you're going to make it and the higher you get the more exhilarating it is and you you know you're trying to figure out how to get the next hold and I found the experience really engaging um and so I started climbing then and and ever since my life has been funnily enough, sort of dictated around the sport. Um, I went to university and I did a degree in zoology. But to be honest, the main reason why I went to university was so that I could go to a really cool part of the UK and go climbing all the time. There you go. And ra- rather than getting a normal job, I ended up um, excelling in my climbing and, and got a few sponsors. And, and I've been a professional climber ever since. So, uh, yeah, it's been a really interesting journey, not one that I would have expected at all. And I feel very fortunate to be able to have a a lifestyle around going on adventures and and doing cool stuff. Wow, Tim, you're making me jealous. I've done a a fair amount of climbing in my day, but I never was able to uh, break away and, and do it anything like full time. So congratulations. Hey, thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. I'm 41. Uh, I'm a dad like my son Rocco's going to be too in uh, in a few weeks. Um, but yeah, it's, climbing's very much. I mean, it, it took me to a place. It took me to Thailand, uh, which is where I met my wife. She was on a beach, and I was base jumping off this cliff, and I basically landed next to her, and that's how we started chatting. And, and <laughs> that's great. She, she lured me out to Canada. And uh, I got to Squamish on the west coast of BC and, and just fell in love with it. I mean, it's amazing up here. And moved out here. We got married and, and yeah, and I live here full time now. So 
if it wasn't for going climbing and maybe even base jumping, I, I, my life definitely wouldn't have turned out the way it has. So I, I'm very thankful for um, for, the, for, for the sport and, and what it's given to me. So yeah. I love the stories where someone follows their passion, they follow their heart, and it leads them into a lifestyle and into something that just really works. That's really cool. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Very um, so, Kurt, you, you've, uh, you've done a fair bit of kayaking, haven't you? You were saying that earlier on. I mean, it sounds like you've done quite a lot of sports, you know, a bit of cliff jumping yourself. I mean, um, yeah, how, how's that been going for you? Do you still do much of that these days? <laughs> well, you know, I have dabbled in a lot, but I haven't become super proficient at, at much. And I am a father of four. Whoa. And some of the, yeah, some of the more extreme sports... I, I put on the shelf when I started raising kids, and that's been the biggest adventure of my life, being married to my wife, Anne, and, and raising these kids. But the beautiful thing is, Tim, and you'll experience this soon, sooner than you think, your two-year-old will not be a two-year-old anymore, and you'll start doing sports with him. And that is one of the most rewarding experiences ever, is to get out and do the things you love with your kids. And so... Now I climb 14ers with my kids, and we alpine ski and backcountry ski and snowshoe, and and uh, we go on backpacking trips and do a lot of fly fishing and just go exploring. Um, we've been up to British Columbia several times together as a family, and and nice. uh, we've tried surfing up there and and yeah. all sorts of things. A lot of a lot of high ropes courses. Have you ever been over to uh, to let's say Moncato Wild Play? Done any of no. that stuff? Yeah. No. <laughs> That's over on Vancouver Island. It's really a lot yep. of fun. Cool. But anyway, so the biggest adventure at all of all, I think, is is waiting for you as your Brilliant. kids grow oh, up. It's wonderful. That sounds magic. Honestly, that's pretty cool to know. And thanks so much for sharing that with us. That's really sweet. Oh, you bet. Tell us about Squamish. De- a little bit more detail. I don't know if everyone knows what it's like up there, but it's a pretty magical place. Do you know, I first met these guys um in thailand as well actually uh that lived in squamish about 15 years ago and they were saying oh you should come out come and check it out it's really cool but i didn't really think much of it at the time and then when i came over here um to see katie my wife i i instantly fell in love with it i mean i've been traveling to a lot of places i i I mean i don't mean to show off here but i think i've counted i've been to 63 countries around the world nice and um, I've been to some amazing places and Squamish is really unique because it's next to the sea. So you've got, you know, you've got all the water sports, you've got kiteboarding, you've got, there's a couple of marinas there. You can go sailing, you can go, go rowing, going fishing, or you can go scuba diving. Actually, there's some good scuba diving around here. Um, but you also have the mountains. So you've got the chief next to you, which is nearly 2000 feet high. It's a, this granite monolith, which has got enough climbing on it to last anyone a lifetime. Um, there's boulders in the woods. There's like two and a half thousand boulder problems in the woods underneath the chief. So that's almost like a sub sport of climbing where people come here for a couple of months in, in the summer and go uh, bouldering. Like uh, For those of you that aren't familiar with bouldering, it's climbing on small rocks without any gear. So you, the, the challenge is to try and get to the top of the, the block. Um, and there's lots of different ways to do that. Some of them are harder than others. But it's a really fun and sociable way of going climbing. You can do it with all your mates. And you use these crash mats at the bottom so that if you do fall off, you can land on the crash mat and you don't hurt yourself. So it's a really popular form of climbing. Um, but there's also some amazing mountain biking. And speaking to some people in America 
that are really into mountain biking, they told me that the, the west coast of Canada, like BC, Vancouver, Squamish and, and Whistler, are, they're really the, 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 the top level standard of mountain biking internationally. So there's, you know, 120 different mountain bike trails here that are all named, they're all constructed and they're graded as well. And, you know, you can drive 45 minutes up the road to go to Whistler or you can go to Vancouver, which is, again, 45 minutes in the other direction. So you've got lots of that to do. And then you've got, like, you know, world-class kiteboarding. There's a thermal wind that blows down the valley every single day that it's sunny. It starts around about 11.30 in the morning and then it sort of blows out between 6 and 7 in the evening. So you get this really constant wind, which is great for windsurfing and kite surfing. And then you've got all these rivers around here as well that are coming down off the glaciers, which are really good for kayaking and rafting. And, you know, you've got Whistler just down the road. So it's a pretty special place. Like, I'm definitely psyched to be here. And uh, I think a lot of people that arrive in Squamish think it's it's paradise. So um, it's, it's a cool spot. It's definitely up and coming at the moment. Like, it's becoming very popular. Oh yeah, um, and, and it's not too far from Vancouver, so you have a big city nearby if you ever want to dip into the big city scene. Totally, totally, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I love it here. Well, that's really neat. You know, it seems like there are adventure sports meccas scattered around the planet, and you definitely found one. The the the, the sort of the other side of Squamish, which I should probably add to this, is that. Um, although it's been really dry for the last few months, usually the rainfall in Squamish is, is, is pretty, is profound. I mean, in the winter, it can start raining in October and it'll rain like constantly for weeks on end. Um, which is great if you're in Whistler because you get lots of fresh snow, but in Squamish itself, because it's down at sea level, it can get quite dreary and, you know, there's not much to do outside apart from running around in the puddles or maybe going biking in the rain or, or taking advantage of the high water levels from going kayaking. But, yeah, the summers and winters here are a real contrast. And a lot of people in Squamish tend to go away in the in the winter or in, <laughs> certainly in November to go and find somewhere that's a bit drier and a bit warmer. Well, that's life in a temperate rainforest, huh? Yeah, exactly. That's also what makes it so beautiful, though. The trees up there are just amazing. Yeah, all the hanging moss. That Yeah, it's really cool. Very beautiful. Well, hey, Tim, why would you encourage people to do adventure sports? It sounds like you've made a lifestyle out of it, but why would you encourage others to try things? Well, do you know what, Kurt? For me personally, if I'm sitting at home, chilling out, watching TV or reading a book or something like that, um, I find it very relaxing and it's, it's a great way to, to, uh, to, to, to pass your time. But what I find is that when I'm doing adventures, like whether it's going climbing or base jumping or going on a bike ride or going down a river or going surfing or whatever, um, I find that the way I feel after I've done that activity is I feel like a new person, like I feel exhilarated and I'm really smiling and I'm psyched. And I just feel great. And I think that by doing adventure sports, it can take you into a state of mind, which is way more rewarding than if you just kind of like chill out and, and, and don't, don't do that sort of thing. So um, I think that's the reason why I do a lot of the sports that I do, because it really fills me with life and um, it gives me a real zest for life. And I, and I, I really enjoy that. 
Oh, yeah. You know, the Adventure Sports Podcast, when we started the show, it was because we loved adventure sports, and we thought how cool it would be to get more involved in the adventure sports community. And we've met really amazing people and just had a lot of fun. But I also have noticed clearly the Adventure Sports Podcast, we've become adventure sports evangelists (laughs) because the (laughs) benefits are huge. And especially in the U.S., uh, it seems like Physical fitness has taken a downturn in the last uh, 10 or 20 years, and we're trying to wake people up and say, hey, get off the couch, turn off the television, get out there and live life, live large. Yeah. yeah. So it yeah. sounds like you certainly have experienced that. Well, do you know, the, the other thing is, um, like in reality, you know, I bet we all know someone that's got cancer or someone that's got a terminal disease or someone that got caught out either in a car accident or they've in a situation where they've had their life and then... You know, it's not the same as it was before. And the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that none of us know how long we're going to live. We don't know. If you're healthy right now, you don't know how long you're going to be healthy for. And the reason why I do a lot of these activities is because you only really get one chance. You know, you're living your life. And if you take it for granted that you're going to be healthy forever, well, you're just kidding yourself because you're not, you know, like... There's one thing that we all know, and that's that we're going to die at some point. Yeah, we just don't know when that's going to be. So by taking every day, you know, as it comes and, and making an experience or having an experience which you're going to remember, I think that that is what life is. You know, it's like life is about experience and things that you can do and things that you can share with people and stories that you can share with people and, you know, whether that's introducing your kids to like cool things that make them smile and happy and get get them really psyched or, or whatever it is. But, you know, that moment that you have is it's not going to last forever, you know, and I really try to make the most of the time that I've got because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or, you know, it's um, so that's another reason why I do a lot of these things, because uh, it uh, it gets me really psyched. And it makes you smile and, it, you know, sharing those experiences with other people, um, it's, it's really, really cool. Yeah, Tim, I couldn't agree with you more. I mentioned this on a previous show, but I recently heard about a study where they, uh, they got a big group of people, of course, and they gave them questionnaires trying to determine how much happiness or joy they got out of different experiences. And so they had things like, I bought that sports car I'd always wanted or got a new house or the new big screen TV, and they found out that the uh, the personal fulfillment and reward from buying things like that didn't last very long. Yeah, it was fun, but, you know, six months later, that new sports car is just another car. And yeah. then they asked people about life experiences, and when people made memories, then the interesting thing is the memory becomes a part of us, and every time we think of it, we relive the experience a little bit, and we get a refreshed you know, a fresh take on that joy that we had the first time around. And they found out that when people make memories, that the happiness, the joy that comes out of those experiences lasts for years and years. So I thought, you know, that's really, really cool. It's a perfect theme for our show as well. We believe that having a big treasure chest full of these sorts of memories is what life should be about. Brilliant. I Yeah, I'm totally with you. I think that's awesome. Yeah, and some interesting findings there too. Um Something that that you mentioned there was uh, when you think about an experience, then you can like relive that moment. Well, interestingly, um, what 
what can happen in that situation is when you think about something, if you, if you think about a happy time in your life, um, what that can do is that sends chemicals from your brain into your body that makes you feel good. So you can totally change the way your body feels by the way you think. So if you think about something that's really, really cool or a very special time in your life, that actually releases chemicals in your brain that, that, that will have an effect on your body. Yeah, awesome. You know, often when I am trying to go to sleep at night, and I usually fall asleep pretty easily, but one thing that I like to do is try to relive an adventurous moment, whether it's downhill skiing or a beautiful 14er climb or a backpacking trip or, you know, whatever the experience is. I just try to think about it and kind of relive that as I drift off to sleep. And it just fills you with the the feeling of well-being like you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Do you find sometimes that you get excited, though, when that happens? And then you don't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I try not to do is think of the next adventure because, you know, it's like people say, what was your best adventure? And they always say, well, the next one. Because <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the one that wakes me up, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I think if, you, if you're going to do something exciting the next day, sometimes it's quite tough to go to sleep. Oh, Because you think absolutely. about you know, what's going to happen and... Uh, yeah, it's like the night before Christmas when you're a kid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Let's talk car racks specifically Yakima and Thule. Chances are, if you're listening to our show, you either have one, want one, or you're going to need a car rack soon. Car racks, whether on the roof or on the back, need a good set of locks to keep your gear locked down to the rack and to your car. Good news. Our new sponsor, Z-Lock, has new lock sets for all Thule and Yakima racks at about one-third less than anywhere else. These lock cores are sourced from the original manufacturer and include bonus keys. Need replacement keys or cores matched to your current lock code? Z-Lock has replacement options even if you've lost all of your keys and don't know your key number. Check this out. Z-Lock is offering Adventure Sports Podcast listeners an additional 20% off their already low prices plus free shipping. Just enter the code ADVENTURE at checkout and you'll save up to 50% off a retail. Go to zlock.com forward slash adventure. That's Z-E-L-O-C-K dot com forward slash adventure and save. For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bentgate is here to help. Bentgate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bentgate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. Well, Tim, you've done a lot of different sports here, but let's pick out a couple that we can dive into a little bit more deeply. Um, deep water soloing. You're pioneering this. What is that? 
Well, when um, when we say pioneering, I would put that more into the past tense. It's something that I was part of the pioneering movement about 15 years ago. And deep water soloing is it's climbing above deep water without a rope. So if you fall off, you fall into the water. And it's something that we established in the UK uh, in, the, in the late 90s with a few other people too, people like Crispin Waddy, Damien Cook. Um, and, and then we introduced it to some Austra- Austrian friends of mine, Clem Loscott, um, Harry Berger. Uh, and then from then on, then we introduced it to people like Chris Sharma, who's a really famous American climber. Um, and Chris has taken it to the next level. He did the hardest deep water solo in the world, which is this route in Mallorca, which was graded 9A+. Um, and in, interestingly, since then, he's now established this deep water soloing competition. And it just took place last, last week at the, um, the trade show, the outdoor retailer show in Utah. And it's super cool, this, because they put a, a climbing wall above a swimming pool. <laughs> there you and go and they have two climbs uh one on either side of this wall that if you imagine the wall overhangs the pool so it's quite a steep wall it overhangs about 45 degrees so once you start climbing on the wall if you fall off at any point you land in the pool and the top of the wall is about 40 feet i think mm. um and yeah so you have these competitions where you have two people that basically race against each other one on either side and the person that gets to the highest first wins um, and then you go through to the next round. And it's such a brilliant form of competition. I mean, it's something that I, I, I'm really, really into. Because from a competitor's perspective, it's really fun. Because, you know, you, you're climbing quickly. And you have to, you've got to be on your game. Because if you make a mistake, you're going to fall off. And you don't get a chance to get back on again. So um, also from a, a, a spectator's perspective, you you know, you're watching two people racing against each other and, Sometimes they'll do big falls or they might land a bit funnily or, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit more interesting than the traditional climbing competitions, I think, from, from everyone's perspective. But, yeah, deep, deep water soloing is my favorite form of climbing because it's so pure. Um, you don't have to carry any equipment. All you think about is how you're going to get the next hold. And the higher you get climbing up the wall or the cave, then the more exciting it becomes because, you know, if you fall off and you land badly, you're really going to hurt yourself. So it adds an element of, uh, of risk. Um, and usually whenever there's a bit of risk involved, it, it, makes the situ- it makes the experience a bit more scintillating, especially if you can overcome it. Um, and the higher you get, the closer you're getting to the top. So, you know, you, you're really, really close to the top of the climb where you're going to get to safety if you can get there so it's um <laughs> thrill it's time you know it's like are you able to resist the tired feeling in your arms you know you've got a lot of lactic acid in your arms and your fingers are starting to uncurl and you're desperately trying to hang on and stay you know get to the top of the route so if you do get to the top you just feel this huge sort of release of adrenaline and exhilaration and, and achievement. And if you don't, then you just go flying off into the sea and you try and figure out how to land well. And it's normally really refreshing because if you're very hot and sweaty and you land in the cool water, it, it's the best thing that you can, best situation you can be in, really. So, yeah, deep water soloing, really cool form of climbing. Love it. Well, if you take a fall, I'm just thinking this through. I used to do a bit of cliff diving, and so I'm accustomed to jumping off of 40 or 50 feet and seeing what that feels like. If uh, if you don't land right 
wow, that could really be punishing. Yeah, yeah, you can really hurt yourself from not very high up, actually. So with deep water soloing, it's a really the the two two golden rules if you're going to do it is uh, number one, and this is the most important. Make sure you know that the water that you're climbing above is deep enough so that when you fall off, you're not going to hit some rocks or something under the water. And if you can't tell how deep it is from above, it's a really smart move to go down for a swim and just make sure that it's deep enough. Or get a really long stick and probe it into the water from a boat or something like that to make sure it's it's got enough, enough depth. And the other thing is um, learning how to land well. Uh, if you do some cliff jumping... Um, do some jumping from like 10, 20 feet, see how you get on. Uh, maybe, and if, you, if you're doing okay and you're not hurting yourself, go up to maybe 30 feet or, or 40 feet. But I think being progressive with that is this, the smartest way forward um, rather than hurling yourself off like some 50-foot cliff and then landing on your side and really hurting yourself. So um, I've done jumps from like 80 feet, 90 feet, and, and they haven't hurt at all, actually. Like I did one yesterday that was about 70 feet, and it was a little bit sore. Like my hands, um, I, I had my hands out, and they slapped the water. Uh, but generally, you can do really high jumps if you land very well, and it's a bit of an art landing well, bringing all your legs and your arms together and being really pencil-like. Um, and, and whatever you do, don't look down, because... It'll be like someone punching you in the, in the face if you Ooh. do, and you won't be <laughs> right. again. But, uh, yeah, it, it's a bit of an art. So if you jump off smaller cliffs first, you, you get into the feeling of it, and you can work on your technique. But, um, yeah, deep water sailing, really, really fun. Highly recommended. I think that people need to develop a good sense of position while they're in the air. And there are things you can do, even while falling, to, to correct your position somewhat. Kind of like a cat trying to spin to get its feet on the yeah. ground, right? Yeah, totally. And so it's important to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing that we found is that if you're very passive about the way that you fall off, like, for example, if you're just hanging there and then you just let go, like a, you know, like a sack of potatoes, you, you, you're not going to land well. So you want to, like, sort of jump off. If you're progressive and you, you're dynamic and you jump off and push yourself off the wall – you're much more in control of your body position. If you kick your legs and your arms, move, move your arms while you're in the air, that helps you to keep your torso vertically. And then when you're getting down to the water, you can bring all your arms and legs in and then get, make a good penetration into the water. But if you just like, you know, let go, then you, you, you're probably going to hurt yourself. Yeah, you bet. Oh, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> so, Tim, you've done all sorts of alpine adventures, and uh, this deep water soloing sounds really, really cool, but you've done a lot of ice climbing, too, and you're well known for that. Um, what got you into ice climbing? Can you tell us a story about an amazing experience that, that got you into that sport? <laughs> um, well, the first time I got into ice climbing was when I was at, in university in North Wales in the UK, and... The, the main reason why I got into it really was because in the summer you can go rock climbing because it's sunny and dry and you can go out on the crags. But in the winter when it's raining a lot, you can't do that. And um, when there's snow on the hills and I knew there'd be some ice up there too. And I just, I, I wanted to venture into the mountains to see what it would be like. You know, I'd heard about people doing that sort of thing and I always like to try new stuff. And uh, this was definitely one of them, but we'd set the alarm and we got up fairly early in the morning and, 
as I was going out of the halls of residence in the university, there was a cleaner there and she was like cleaning the floor and what have you, you know, before anyone got up. And it was cold and windy outside and it was still dark. And I was walking down the corridor with my rucksack on with all my ice climbing gear in, about to venture into the unknown. And uh, and she turned around to me and she's like, oh, oh what, what are you doing? Are you going to go climbing in this weather? Because that's what they sound like in North Wales. And, uh, and, um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, we're going to go into the mountains. We're going to go ice climbing. And she... She's like, oh, you don't want to do that. You know, it's really dangerous. You know, you should stay <laughs> at home. And, um, and of course, you know, you're thinking that from a normal person's perspective, maybe doing what you're doing is, is, uh, is a little bit risky. Um, but anyway, we, we pushed on and we ventured into the hills and we had a really cool time. We climbed this um, 800 foot ice climb that was, it wasn't very steep. Uh, but it, it was it was an amazing adventure, and that was where it really started for me. Um, and then um, after that, I wanted to learn more about how to do it. And there was a, a a guy called Jeff Lowe who had made this first well, he'd made this instructional ice climbing video, and it's still available, I think. But I used to work in a climbing shop, and I I watched this while I was working there, waiting for customers to come in, and I learned all the skills that he was talking about, and then and then you know went out and tried them, and uh, yeah, it really helped me a lot to be more safe and also to climb better and more efficiently, um, and then um, and then one day we decided to go to the ice climbing World Cup which was a new competition that had just started. It was going to, the first event was in Austria. And my, my friend Neil Gresham and I decided to go out there. We did loads of training for about three months before we, we, um, we went to the competition. And uh, yeah, there were people from all over the world, like loads of Russians, lots of people from Eastern Europe. There was a Canadian guy there called Will Gadd, who I'm sure many of your listeners will, will know about. He was the National Geographic Adventure of the Year last year, and he's a really good friend of mine now. But, um, yeah, we, that's how I first met Will. And uh, somehow I got into the final, and I was competing with him. And when we were sitting in isolation, he was the only other guy in there that spoke English because all the others were, like, Russian or Eastern European. So we naturally started talking. And, and yeah, you know, that was the beginning of a, a very long friendship. So, uh, you know, a bit, bit of a you know, a compressed story about going from learning how to ice climb to then competing in the World Cup. But that was how it all started for me. Oh, that's neat. So you mentioned isolation, just so people understand. What does that have to do with climbing? Oh, well, isolation is in a competition, you're not allowed to see other people competing at the time because then it would give you an advantage if you saw how they did it. So you're in an isolation room where you're, yeah, you, you can't see what's going on. And then when, you, when it's your turn to climb, you then get released from this room and then you can go out and try and do your climb in a way that we call on-site. So it's like you just have to figure it out yourself rather than knowing how to do it from watching someone else before. Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I just thought the listeners might want to know what that was about. Yeah, so, yeah, good call. Um, some people that listen to our show obviously are climbers, but some people haven't tried ice climbing. What kind of gear is required and how does it work? How do you stay on the ice? Well, the, the key to, to, to going ice climbing is you need to have something to hang on with your hands and something that's going to keep your feet on, and then you're tied to a rope as well. And you have ice axes that you hang on to with your hands, and the ice axes are really 
come on a long way in, in, in product development in the last 15 or 20 years. So the, the newer ice axes, they're very curved, and then they've got incredibly sharp picks at the end. So they're really easy to hang on to, and they're, they sh- they're, they're curved, so they fit around the ice features well. So you strike the ice axe into the ice, and if you place it in the right spot, which is usually like a groove or a flat piece of ice, then it goes in first time. And that's great because it means you can pull on it without having to strike it numerous times, which you do sometimes when it's very, very cold. Like if it's like minus 15 or minus 20, the ice tends to be very brittle. So it's difficult to get placements because when you hit the ice, it it just shatters. So um, you've got your ice axes that you're hanging on to with your hands. And then you've got boots on your feet, which have got crampons on. And their crampons are stainless steel spikes that are attached to your boots. And you kick those into the ice and they hold your foot in position so you can stand up and then place your other ice axe. And then you, another way to sort of make yourself safe is that you, you're tied to a rope. And you can either be, the rope can go to the top of the ice climb and then come back down to the person that's belaying or holding the friction device. We call that top roping. And that's a great way to learn to, to ice climb because if you fall off, then you don't fall very far at all because the, the rope's tight. Um, but once you get into more what we call lead climbing, then you have to place these things called ice screws. And an ice screw is a stainless steel tube with very sharp teeth on one end and a thread. And it's, it's, um, it's a, the tube's hollow. So as you turn this into the ice, it bites into the ice and it starts to drill a hole into the ice. And then the ice that was where the screw goes in then comes out through the hole in the tube. And the, the ice screw is quite secure, actually. If you put it in good ice, it can hold, you know, a thousand pounds of weight, no problem. So mm. you put these in quite frequently. And then if you were to fall off, which is a really bad idea when you're ice climbing because you've got sharp ice axes and crampons that, you know, can jab into your body or, or into the ice. But if you did fall off and you had these ice screws in, they, they'd probably hold you if you had them in good ice. But it's not, you know, you might be catching a bit of a, get a, a bit, bit of my drift here. It's not really a good idea to fall off when you go ice climbing. It's yeah, I'm gathering that. <laughs> <laughs> Too many yeah. sharp things. Yeah, it's kind of spooky. So you may, you had a key word there that I want to ask about. You said, if your ice screw goes into good ice, it'll hold a 1,000 pounds. But how do you know if you've got good ice or not? Yeah, There's so well, many different conditions out there. There are. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Kurt. I mean, a, a lot of it comes down to experience. You know, it's like, like anything, really. If you spend a lot of time doing an activity, then you learn the difference between, you know, good conditions and poor conditions. But generally, like, good ice is, um, it won't have air bubbles in it, and it'll be um, blue and see-through. Uh, so when you put your ice screw into there, you can actually watch the threads going into the ice from the outside. Um, whereas poor ice might be something that's melting if it's above freezing or it's coming away from the rock or maybe it's got snow in it so it's quite white um, or even if it's just a bit mushy, you know, may, you know, it's not really frozen properly. So, uh, yeah, there's lots of different types of ice. But there's a place that I've been developing with uh, a few friends of mine and particularly with Will Gadd over the last four or five years, which is the... It's really the sort of uh, how can I how can I term this? It's like the it's the ultimate ice climbing destination globally, and it's a place called Helmkin Falls 
It's in BC, up in Wells Grey Provincial Park. And it's this huge ice cave, which has got a waterfall that pours over the top, which is about 500 feet high. And we've been developing the climbing in there in, with a slightly different mindset in the respect that normally when you go ice climbing, you climb waterfalls that are frozen. But this particular waterfall never freezes because it's a you know raging river that pours over the top of this thing. It's like the third highest volume waterfall in North America. And um, yeah, so it never freezes. But what it does do is when it, the water lands at the base, you, it creates this mist. And the mist, when it's very cold, will bond onto the back walls of this cave. And then you get these incredible uh, ice features that are formed that look like, um, you know, sort of uh, octopus arms that suspend from the ceiling. There's like, there's millions of these things that are suspended from the roof. I mean, it really looks like a set from a sci-fi movie. You're describing the uh, picture that's on the front page of your website, aren't you? Yes. Oh, it's beautiful. So if people want to see what you're talking about, what URL should they go to? Um, It's... uh, timemmet.com t-i-m-e-m-e-t.com yeah it's a beautiful uh, picture that's just gorgeous it's it's otherworldly yeah yeah it's a really cool place actually i've been going there every year for the last four or five years and every time we go down there we you know we try and climb a new route and uh yeah the videos in fact there's a couple of videos on the internet if you do a search for tim emmett on epic tv um, there's a couple of videos on there of the cave, um, and they've had about half a million views each, so they, they seem to be quite popular. Um, so, yeah, have a, have a look through those. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Tim, you have a, a, an amazing website there as well. I was really enjoying going through it, and that's timemmet.com. So it's T-I-M-E-M-M-E-T-T.com. And so, listeners, go check out Tim's website. You'll get a lot more information there about a lot of the different adventures that tim does and tim you're a professional climber so you're sponsored um who sponsors you yeah i've been um i've been working with mountain hardware uh for the last 16 years there i'm sure many of the listeners will, will know they're an american brand they're based in san francisco um they make really top-end innovative outdoor clothing and equipment tents rucksacks things like that and, uh, yeah, I'm really proud to be part of that brand because they've made some such cool stuff. And they're quite a, a boutique brand, you know, like not that many people know about them. And um, they're very uh, sort of um, end user orientated. So they're, they're the sort of brand that you might not have heard about, but, you know, definitely worth checking out because uh, although they're not mainstream, they... Uh, yeah, they've won so many awards for innovations in the last six or seven years. It's uh, Yeah, I'm really psyched to be part of their brand, actually. They make some really cool stuff. And it makes my life a lot easier because it means that when I go and do the activities that I do, I can totally rely on the gear, which sometimes is, you know, in life-threatening situations. So, you know, the gear fits me really well. It, it, it works the way I need it to. You know, I can move around in it a lot. It's very lightweight. Last a long time, and um, yeah, they do. They make everything that I need to go on adventures. So yeah, really cool brand. Cool Mountain Hardware. I'm gonna have to check them out. I uh, I think I've seen some of their gear before, but I'm gonna go and and look a little bit more closely. Sounds like good stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Think I mean the thing about Mountain Hardware is that the people that make it, they're all users themselves. 
you know, the, the president, Martin Hardware, he, he does like 50 mile ultra marathons. And like my boss, who's the sponsorship manager, he's done like 100 mile races as well. And, you know, they're, they're really into doing all this sort of stuff. And I think working with a brand where people that are part of it are doing the sort of activities that you aspire to do and, and want to be part of as well. It, you know, it's a really cool family um, family business. And well, I mean, it's a bit big in the family business, but yeah, they're a really good team, really cool, really young team and dynamic too. Well, that's what you want. You want people that are out there using the gear because they know how to make it. <laughs> they know what's needed, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by 180TAC.com. 180TAC manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com. Colorado Mountain Club members get the most out of the Colorado summers. We summit 14ers, enjoy relaxing fly fishing excursions, climb thousand foot rock faces, backpack through wilderness areas, explore the culture of Europe, raft through the Grand Canyon, and so much more. The Colorado Mountain Club teaches you the skills you need to safely maximize living in such an awesome outdoor playground, as well as connects you to thousands of other adventure-loving mountaineers. Founded in 1912, the Colorado Mountain Club acts as a gateway to the mountains for novices and experts alike. It's the perfect time to sign up for a membership. For more information, go to cmc.org. That's cmc.org. Well, very cool. So tell us about a time that things did not go right. And the reason we ask this question is, for one, it makes a great story, but also because you have the opportunity here to give a word of advice that could really help someone when they get in a, a similar bind. So tell us about a time that something did not go right and how you managed. Yeah. Well, a couple of years ago, I was wondering which story I should tell you here because I've got quite a few. <laughs> um a couple of years ago, I went to this place in the Northwest Territories called the Vampire Spires. And the Vampire Spires, as you might expect, are these like teeth like, like uh, granite spires. Um, but I knew that no one had ever base jumped there before. And what the plan was, was to try and access these spires by um, unconventional methods. And that method was to go stand up paddleboarding down a river called the Little Nahani. And to give you an idea of what that entails, um, the Little Nahani, it's, it's got uh, um, rapids up to class four. And it's completely out in the wilderness. It's a 10-hour drive from um, um, Whitehorse to get there. And the nearest town's about five, well, it's a village, is about five hours drive away from where we got dropped off. Uh, so we had these paddle boards to try and go 240 kilometers down the river wow so then, <laughs> that's a long then, way yeah 
to then gain access to these vampire spires that we wanted to climb up and then wingsuit fly off the top. So it was quite, a, you know, it was a, definitely a big challenge and an ambitious project. But um, we managed to get down the river okay. Like the first part of the river, the, like the first section of rapids were 18 kilometers long. And it took us 10 hours to do the first portion of this river, which had never been stand-up paddleboarded before. And we had like, you know, buoyancy aids, wetsuits, we had gloves and boots on. And then we had like loads of mountain bike body armor, which was... Um, I'm so glad we had it because the thing with going down a river on a paddleboard is that if the, if, especially from the source of a river, quite often there's a lot of, there's low water and it, there's a lot of rocks. And with a stand-up paddleboard, you have fins on the back. And when your fin hits a rock, it, it, it stops the board. And because you're standing up, like it's really easy to just knock you off balance and you fall in. And then you have to try and get back on the board. And the time between falling off and getting back on the board you tend to go down like a pinball in a pinball machine, you know, <laughs> sure. and you're like bouncing these rocks trying to get back on your board again. So um, once you, we got down into into uh, deeper water, then, you know, it, it wasn't so much of an issue bouncing off these rocks. But we managed to get down the river and we, we then got our, made our way up to the vampire spires. And we climbed this route and we got to the top of this climb. And the plan was to try and find a place that would be suitable to wingsuit fly. So you've got, you know, you put your wingsuit on and then you you need a vertical wall that's about 800 feet high to give you enough time and space to, for the wingsuit to inflate. And then you can start to fly away from the wall and fly down a valley or, you know, fly down to your landing area. But the thing was is that um, we were climbing in a team of four and one of the guys had um, a, a recent shoulder injury and he hadn't been climbing very much and we were also climbing with our base rigs which are quite heavy to be honest they're about eight kilos with your base rig and your wingsuit so it took us a bit longer to get to the top of this spire than we originally anticipated but because we were there in the in the summer you know it, it only gets dark for a few hours like three or four hours in the in the between sort of midnight and and three or four o'clock in the morning we got to the top and it was 11 o'clock at night, so it was just starting to get dark. And one thing that I'd learned over the years of looking for new exit points with a wingsuit or when you're base jumping is that it's absolutely essential that you don't rush it. Like, if you you need to make sure that you know exactly whether it's, it's on or not, you know, whether you're going to be okay if you jump off this wall, because, you know, you can't second guess it. Um, you know, it, it's just the consequence of, of making a mistake is way too high. So we got there at 11 o'clock and it was starting to get dark. And we, we decided that we'd be much better off if we spent the night on top of this spire. And we waited until the morning so that we had more light and we wouldn't be in a rush to evaluate whether it was jumpable or not. So we did do that. And um, but the thing is, we didn't have a sleeping bag or anything like that. We weren't, really weren't planning to spend the night up there. And it was pretty chilly, and there were four of us, and um, I ended up sleeping in my wingsuit. And the thing is, you know, you, sharing bodily warmth is definitely the way forward because, uh, you know, you're just way warmer, and you might get some sleep if you're huddled up really close to your, your friend. And there's, like, four guys <laughs> like that, you know. And, you know, maybe to start off in the night, you just got your hands you got your hands beside yourself and, you know, you sort of try not to move, you know, because you've got a lot of body contact, contact with your, with your friend. But then <laughs> you don't want to get slapped. 
as the as the night gets colder, you're basically just getting as close to each other as you can, and you're just wrapping yourselves around each other and you know shivering basically trying to stay warm um and the two people in the middle who have got people on both sides get a bit of sleep but the two people on the outside that are next to a cold rock they're not sleeping because it's just you know it's too unpleasant so uh, anyway we we waited until it got light and uh you know had our wingsuits on already and all we had to do was just put a base rig on and, and, and then jump off and i don't know about you i mean after a, a poor night's sleep. I definitely like to have an espresso or a coffee or maybe a bit <laughs> of breakfast or, you know, something to warm yourself up. But all we had to warm ourselves up was to like jump into the unknown. And it's going from, it's like going from naught to 120 in like one second, you know, where you like, you wake up and then you get in a racing car and you have to drive as fast as you can down the road. You know, the, the transition from one to the other is, was quite um, dramatic. So we ended up, you know, we, we got ready um, and we evaluated that it was, it was safe to jump, but it was a bit lower than we anticipated. And um, we knew that, but we still decided that it was okay. It was, you know, it was a really technical jump in the respect that it wasn't that high and the landing area was quite a long way away and it was very small. So we had to execute the jump perfectly to be able to get to the landing area. We had to do a, a 90 degree turn on the left hand side as well to get the right angle to then make landing area too. Um, and we both jumped off and we flew and my flight went really well right up until the point when I pulled my parachute and then I had this parachute malfunction where my my um, my lines ended up rotating and twisting around. Yikes! So I was flying backwards, and well, the canopy was flying in the right direction towards the landing area, but I was facing in the other direction, and I only had about ten seconds to organise this twist so that I could then land in exactly the right spot. Um, but it wasn't long enough. Like 10 seconds wasn't long enough to be able to organize this. And, you know, I needed like 20 or, or 25 seconds. And my friend landed safely um, on the side. And I ended up crash landing into this field where it's like a boulder field, actually. And it was really scary. Like it was um, it was the first time in my base career where I've not been in control of what's going to happen mm. next. And I didn't like it that much. It was it shook me up a little bit and I was about to become a dad and. You know, I was, um, it was, it was, I got away with it. You know, I could have got really badly injured, but I didn't. I got a puncture wound in my shoulder and I also, you know, got a, a twisted ankle. But, it, you know, looking at the bigger picture, I was okay. And going, you know, looking back at it, I, what I realized was, was that in my base jumping and wingsuit career, I'd set myself these parameters that I was going to stay within to make it safe. Because, you know, I'm sure many of you out there think about base jumping and wingsuit flying as something that's like really, really high risk. I mean, in fact, if you look at adventure sports, it's the number one. It is the most dangerous sport that you can do out there, um, according to national statistics. So um, I thought that, you know, the way if I was going to do this sport, I was going to do it in a way that I would stick adhere to these particular rules and therefore I'd make it safer than perhaps it would be if I didn't do that um, but what I've realized was that I was breaking those rules myself and I was actually pushing I was pushing it um, and this particular jump was a combination of all sorts of different factors all of which were being pushed to the red line 
Um, and as a result, you know, something happened and, uh, you know, I nearly had a really bad accident, but I got got away with it. So what I learned from that is that, you know, there's, there's taking risk and there's getting a reward from it. But I think sometimes that you really have to draw the line as to when to say no. And for, for some situations, especially base jumping and wingsuit flying, the temptation to jump is, is really, really high because it's much faster to get down to your landing area and it's a lot easier, it's a lot more fun than like abseiling down 20 pitches to get down or you know, spending hours and hours and hours trying to get back down again. So um, making good decisions in times of stress and learning when to say no and adhering to that is a, a really good quality. Um, and it's sometimes a tough decision to make. So, you know, it's great to be able to go out and do these adventures and push the limits and things like that. But I think when it gets really extreme, you know, when the consequence and the risk is absolutely at the top, like let's say, you know, you, you really want to climb a mountain and you put a lot of time and money and effort into it and you get there and you get really close to the top and maybe, you know, your body's not quite in the, in the, in the condition that it needs to be or the, the weather conditions aren't quite right or something like that. When you're in that situation, learning when to say, right, now's the time to cut off and go down because if I keep going, it's going to put me in a really threatening situation. I think that's a, a, it's a tough call to make, but it's a good one to be able to, you know, keep you alive and keep you around, which I think is definitely worthwhile. Oh, yeah. You want to you wanna live to enjoy adventures another day. Exactly. It's better to be able to come back and tell stories about things you've done than not come back at all. Oh, yeah. And it's fun to come back and tell a story that, hey, we didn't make it, but guess what happened? <laughs> that's pretty fun, too. Yeah, yeah. True, true, absolutely. Tim, I understand that you're also a motivational speaker. Tell us about that. I I really enjoy going into going into schools and talking to the younger generation about life. And although I don't wingsuit fly or base jump anymore, I've had some really cool experiences to all over the world. And I found that I've learned lots of different things from going on these adventures. Um and some of the key messages that I've really helped me out a lot are, you know, putting a lot of effort into things that I do and trying new experiences, being open to going to new places, being open to the fact that you might be able to do something that maybe you think that you can't and making the most of life while you can. And I really enjoy going to schools and doing talks to you know, like the whole school or big audiences about, you know, putting lots of effort into your work, trying to do the best you can so you can get the best results so you can then have more opportunities to have fun in your life and, you know, get the sort of jobs that you want and and do the things that you want to do. So, uh, yeah, if there's any schools out there that want to sign me up for a talk, I'm all ears. I've done loads of them in the UK. I'd really like to break into the uh, American market and and talk to and inspire lots of peoples in America too. Um, And, yeah, like going on adventures and making the most of the time that you have. Because I think it's uh, it's it's gold dust, you know. Like life is a special um, thing that you know we we we're not going to have forever. So make the most of it while you can. Yeah, that's delightful. I love it that you're reaching out to inspire kids, and I I love working with kids like that. I've taught oh probably forty or fifty people how to uh, sport repel, and I love to take teens out to do that. 
and teaching kids to ski, to downhill ski. It's it's an amazing thing, and it just opens up the lives of these kids and lets them know that life can be a lot bigger than perhaps the experience that they're having at that time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you you, you don't know what you don't know. Like, there's a lot mm. of things out there that um, you haven't experienced yet, and uh, you may never even have heard of these things yet. But, you know, if you try lots of different things, and, you know, you might find that you get a lot of enjoyment out of them and uh, that can lead on to other things and fill your life with uh, good times, which is definitely where it's at. I think that's what you want to do. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I agree. So Tim, if someone says, wow, we got to get this guy over here to speak to these kids, um, how do they reach you? Yeah. Um, send me an email, tim at timemmett.com. Have a look at my website. There's a contact button on there. Um, yeah. So get in touch. Tim, thank you very much for your time today and for being on the show. And I would love to have you on again because we can dive deeper into a lot more of these stories. I'm sure the listeners would agree. It's just been a, a really enjoyable time. Hey, well, thanks very much for the interview, Kurt. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you and listening about you know, some of the things you've done with your family as well. I mean, it's really cool to, to know what I've got in store for the future. So thanks very much for sharing that with me. Oh, you bet you're most welcome. And for all of our listeners out there, thank you for your time as well. And until the next show, get out there and have some fun. Hey, thanks, Kurt. Good one. Thanks, everyone. 